welcome to the ARC Audio Book Club. We are back after a short summer break, this time with the Easter Parade by Richard Yates. He appeared on my literary map pretty late, and it wasn't until I read the Tao Lin book with the name Richard Yates that I really became aware of him. And as it turned out, I had already read Revolutionary Road years back and didn't really know that it was by him, but it's a really good book that I would implore everyone to read. However, this month, it's the Easter Parade from 1976 that made the cut. And making the cut means that three people in the shop have read the book. Shortlisted for this time was the Count of Monte Cristo, but Macon still refuses <laughs> to read it. So here we are with this dark novel about unfulfilled expectations and ambitions and alcoholism and the importance of group size, like normal life. And to talk about the book, we have first-timer Emma Akasbo. Hello. And Tommel Kualik. Howdy doodly. And Macon Holtz. Hello. And I'm Giovanna Alessandro. Macon, can you start out by giving us a recap of the book? Yeah, um, so the book uh, follows the life ostensibly of two sisters, Sarah and Emily, but actually really only Emily is of interest to Yates's narrator. Um, as they, you know go from uh, their childhood in a, a broken home in the 1930s uh, into, uh, well, Emily's uh, university days, um, going into uh, various industries like copywriting and uh, journalism, uh, her love affairs. Um, all parallel to this is the uh, more domestic life of her sister, Sarah, which starts off as a kind of sort of Rockwellian idyll and then becomes you become aware of all of the darkness that is actually... Um, bubbling underneath from alcoholism to spousal abuse and uh, and in and, you know, undiscussed illness. Um, yeah, I think that's what happens. Is mm. anything? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think, yeah. Uh, yeah, in short, it's the life of two sisters spanning from about, I think it's 1940s to, and it, it ends by like 1970-something. Yeah. Um, first question is that my friend asked me yesterday why this book is called The Easter Parade, and I could not remember. I think there is something about an Easter parade when the sisters are young and the dad mm. takes them to this, but... Um, yeah, Can it's I, yeah. the one with uh, where she has to wear the, you know, the pretty Chinese-style dress. Uh, Sarah has to wear that dress and kind of show herself off. Mm -hmm. And there's a picture taken of mm -hmm. her and her... Um, I don't know if it's a... I can't remember if it's a lasting fiancé. It's her future husband. Yeah, funny. her future husband. And um, the picture sort of becomes... Uh, symbol of the sort of idol that make it mm. mentioned okay it's like a reverse dorgan grace picture uh, where uh, they just become worse and worse uh, as, as a couple uh, uh, and the picture stays the same and it's just a sad reminiscent it's a, it's a, it's a reverse dorian gray picture like a regular picture <laughs> 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 oh, that's how we call it. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I think the point's taken because it is this frozen moment in time, um, both inconsequential and incredibly consequential. Yeah. One thing that yeah. I um, like about this book is uh, not how dark it is necessarily, but how Yates spares no one. Like at first, I thought it was just the women who were like not really good at like anything or like, I mean, the way he depicts them, it's just how they have ambitions and how they're not able to fulfill them. But actually, I think it's also a story about the men in the book and they just come off way worse than the women. <laughs> like the women have some agency right here, mm. 
uh, they want something. The mm. men are just sort of like weak, useless idiots yeah. who can't. Um, like they all seem like parodies, really. Mm. Yeah, I think that's also quite a curious thing because I guess within the norms of the time, men are expected to want something, mm-hmm. and it's almost like they're being defeated by their social expectation that they should be driven and have some sort of agency and take action towards mm-hmm. that goal. Um, and so they're never living up to that, which is, yeah, understandable because that's tricky. Um, but at the same time, yeah, in, in in a world where it should have been impossible for Emily to do any of the things she does, mm-hmm. she does them. Yeah. And, you know, and has an adventure, I would say. Um, so, um, I mean, the prose in this book is so sort of razor sharp. It's mm-hmm. as if there's nothing extra there. There's no... Um, sentence that doesn't have to be there there's not a single description that isn't sort of very precise Mm. and necessary and I was wondering like what do you think he is omitting by this like what is he definitely not interested in Um, because he explores sort of like the darkness Mm. right and how they are not able to live up to their own expectations and how everything Mm. around them fails but I was thinking like this is sort of like normal life but without all the fun parts he's not like he, he doesn't dwell on those there are fun parts though there's a, i think i don't know i mean there's obviously the all the tragedy tragic parts and that seems to be the thing that mo- <clears throat> that's the thing that motivates all the transitions between yeah. the sections yeah. but they name, get, name one part that is fun um i think the beginning of her relationship with the poet uh mm. the, the main the, the majority of her relationship towards yeah. the end um uh, her youthful indiscretions that year she spends before mm. she gets married to the uh, to the philosopher it seems to be I mean it's both painful and fun I think it's like an explore, explorative time but it always passes by so fast right yeah. I think his tendency is to be like it was all great for about three months and yeah. then and, uh, <laughs> yeah all the sort of joyful things mm. sort of seem to lead up to destruction to make that yeah. even more devastating mm-hmm. yeah but I think it's it's yeah I mean it's to do with how he he sees I guess um, transition um, and sort of like threshold points where you you become something else and you have to you there's a change now and you're going to do something and that's I mean that's what a book is going to be about because I mean a book that's just like all of the good times that I mean imagine the inverse yeah. book where it's just describing different lazy Sunday afternoons in bed or going to the park together or seeing mm-hmm. theater and talking about literature and then just like a couple of paragraphs and then a few months later it didn't work out so it's broke uh, up. Sally Rooney's novel <laughs> <laughs> sounds like but yeah and here it's yeah. the good good things lead yeah. to nothing right yeah uh, the change mm. and the transition mm. happens in mm. like in all the shitty yeah. parts right yeah. that leads to something new mm. Yeah, which yeah. I don't know if like, but at least that's how the novel works. But it's also you carry the good carries through it. It's not like it's absent from the like. Even though the bad falling apart happens, the the good did happen, and mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons why the transition is like necessary or possible. Oh. But I think um, on the on the point of the prose, um, I was I, I was also struck by how it was so plain and so and so just spare, and it was all about. The gaps, all about the the omitted bits of of language. How you would describe someone's like the kind of the, the 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 nothing remark they say in response to something, which is quite shattering. Mm-hmm. Um, especially like what's the um, what's the refrain that Emily has whenever I see, yeah, when she says I see after yeah. someone tells her something mm-hmm. awful, and you just feel all of the weight in that, even though it's just two words, and that's quite a master of yeah, master of the craft there, I think. It's interesting because uh, the book is from the 70s, so at that time, uh, if I'm not wrong, um, there was much more experimentation in literature, mm. uh, American literature, 
Jay, Jay Ballard uh, mm. and um, uh, Barf and Pinchon. Mm. Am I right? Yeah. <coughs> or Ballard's English, but yeah. Yeah. And this is just so bleak and plain. Uh, mm. And also I've read on the internet that it was largely forgotten un un until mm. some time ago. Uh, uh, it went out of print. No one read it. Uh, I wonder if this kind of writing may have uh, contributed to to that uh, uh, f being forgotten. It's yeah, certainly it's like it's uh, in a fashion ten years out of date. When it was, it seems like mm. it's more like yeah. a sixties, like late fifties, sixties realist kind of exactly. piece. Yeah. And, yeah, I also saw that the Danish translation didn't come out until like a few years ago. Yeah, oh, two thousand like, ten. Yeah, wow. it's, it's, yeah, it's less than ten years ago since the Danish translation came mm -hmm. out. Wow, so quite... it's been very forgotten. <laughs> yeah. Chapter one starts with neither of the Grimes sisters would have a happy life. Mm. And I mean, that's debatable, right? <laughs> yes. So like, what is a happy life according to the book? Because I mean, no one has it. Uh, everyone has normal lives, though. I think the book knows that. And I think it's almost like it's setting you up with a false um, expectation. It's like it's going like, read this. It's almost like it's saying, read this as a tragedy, you simpleton. Yeah, yeah, it definitely calls you out to mm. the tragedy, like, like you said, the because the prose is so sparse mm. and because there are the happy parts, mm. it almost calls attention to like you're gonna have to pay attention to all the bleak bits <laughs> in this, yeah. because that's what the mm. narrator is interested in, mm. and that's what he uses to you know transition and such. So it's almost a call to you know, this mm. is what you have to pay attention to because that's yeah. what we're gonna have to find interesting. Yeah, but but still within that, it's like. It's always like the action. It's it's a weird thing because it's always it's like the motor is going between those moments, but the only reason those moments hurt is because of there's this other undescribed yeah. joyful bit. And yeah, I mean, you know, at the end of life, it's not as much fun. And I wonder because this um the book ends right before uh, Emily's not near death at this point, even though everyone else is dead. Almost, it seems. Mm. Um, it's like very apocalyptic in that. But also accurate, I guess. And we don't know what's going to happen in the next phase of, phase of her life. Maybe now that things have quieted down, for her, maybe now she's going to get the writing done she's been trying to do and failing at throughout the book. Or maybe not. Maybe she's just going to have a quiet, miserable remainder. But we don't know. And it's, yeah. It's... And she offers a rare uh, glimpse of hope. Mm. Uh, maybe it's his, it's his publisher who, who made him <laughs> write it. <laughs> Yeah, um, I really love his descriptions. Um, like my favorite part, um, or one of my favorite parts, is when uh, Emily is alone and single, I think, mm -hmm. in New York, where she lives for most of her life, mm -hmm. and how lonely she is, yeah. and how she spends her days thinking about, like, she's invited herself, sort of, like, mm. manipulated her friend a little bit into inviting her to a party, mm. which takes place in a week, and how she sort of spends that whole week preparing for that party yeah. and thinking about it. And then how she's just totally let down at that party. That mm. was just heartbreaking. And, like, my total highlight was when... Um, so her sister has this abusive husband, Tony, um, and Emily has uh, tried to talk her into leaving him because he's beating her up. And she's really tried to convince her of leaving him. And then finally, when uh, when her sister Sarah is ready to leave him, she calls Emily up one night and says, like, okay, I'm going to leave him now. Mm. And then Emily just flips because <laughs> she's now with her current lover and yeah. she thinks that she can make an impression yeah. on him mm. by telling her sister to stay. Mm. And like she knows that the sister would now be a burden in her life if she came and she mm. had to get her a job and she would move in with her and stuff. 
And she shows off a little bit to her new lover mm. by saying like, no, you should stay with her, your husband. And like, you couldn't just mm. get a job and like, there's nothing <laughs> for you here really. Yeah, and she yeah. hangs up and her new lover is like, why did you tell her that? Like, <laughs> we have two apartments. We have two apartments <laughs> and like everything just shatters a little bit again. Mm. And this is what the book keeps doing, I think. Mm. Yes, uh, uh, it's like the, the Alfred Frost, uh, those wasted opportunities at, at Emily, mm. Mm. which is maybe not in the plain sight, but it makes her look like she kind of earned this, this place that she is at at, at the end. Mm. The same with this party, like she, as far as I remember, she went there uh, hoping to get late mm. and not to make friends, for instance. Mm. Uh, yeah. Could be another approach, more of a yes man. Yeah. Yeah, and it's also like she's just not good at living her life and mm. the consequences aren't immediately. Mm. It just, she just gets miserable, like, and she ends up in the book being very miserable yeah. and then we don't know what's going to happen. Um, yeah. But... Yeah, the direction is... It's not great. Way. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, it's it's actually, it's interesting what you say about this, yeah, the wasted opportunities. There's always stuff thrown at her feet. Like, she got the scholarship, she... She 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 has the time to write. She has the space of creative people, and and it's almost like she yeah. It also, it's kind of like her father sort of foreshadowed in that. Like there's someone who could have done all these things, but was always a copy desk man, and like she is always a copywriter. And it's like one step up the ladder of the American dream. Or, but then also the dream is kind of crazy because she's also like there is some fun that that could be had if she would just like relax about aspiring to stuff. <laughs> yeah, it seems whenever her like professional life or academic life is going well that then the focus suddenly becomes how bad her you know personal life is or her mm. love life is and so there's constantly she seems to constantly find an aspect mm. to mull about and be sort of upset with like yeah. okay i have this scholarship to this university mm. but the guy i'm seeing isn't really you know <laughs> doing what he can and <laughs> so she's miserable about, about that and she lets that sort yeah. of get to her yeah. instead of focusing on the good part which would be you know you're getting a scholarship to an education yeah. which is a pretty big deal yeah yeah and, uh, doesn't it speak a lot about the, the social relations of the time like uh, i think uh, it was a common opinion that women would go to college back then to to meet uh, mm. future husbands mm-hmm. um yeah. to study things like literature so you go to dinner parties in the future yeah. <laughs> yeah. and as she said she wanted to go to college because um what is it uh, there's a sentence there that is really good because her like her mom is an alcoholic, but being an, an intellectual meant that you wouldn't care about like it wouldn't matter that your mom was an alcoholic yeah. or it would give it an exotic twist or yeah. something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, She's yeah, incredibly yeah. vain. It's at the point and where the mom gets so drunk at something where mm-hmm. her dress sort of rides up yeah. and shows her underwear, as far as I can remember. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she's like, well, if you're an intellectual, it doesn't matter that you yeah. have a mother who shows her underpants at yeah. parties. Yeah. Yeah. And she's just incredibly yeah. self-sabotaging. That's famous. That's also a wonderfully perfectly, it's a perfectly teenage thought that. That's mm-hmm. exactly what an 18-year-old would think yeah. of. It wouldn't matter because, like, I'm doing this now. I'm yeah. way, way better. And she just yeah. never does it because, yeah, other things get in the way yeah. and, yeah, she doesn't focus. Um, yeah, it's like her motivation never changes. Uh, mm. we, we don't see any mm. intellectual development in her during her years in college. Mm. She just wants to have this uh, brand of intellectual mm. uh, as opposed to her mom who was just a small town, simple town. Seeking, seeking flair. Flair. <laughs> But also everyone is yeah. just 
soaked in alcohol. Yeah. There is not a scene where with the social setting without them just getting smashed. I'm gonna take a drink now. Um, yeah. <laughs> Cheers, Megan. Is, is it Denmark or what? <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me a little bit like that, that um, of like a, of a contemporary writer who of a novel that's written much later about this time or a few years later. Inherent Vice, where they talk about the the feeling that American life is something to be escaped, and it's almost like that's the that's the sensation. Is there's a when you're when you're given that kind of freedom to do supposedly what you want, um, and you have you know your place is decided by your own actions. It's incredibly frightening. You know, you could just be if you were in the Soviet Union, you could be ordered to run into a nuclear power plant. And that's like that, that that tells you you get purpose that way. It's much better in some in some sense. Mm. Not in every sense, obviously, but I think yeah that um, that individualism is liberating as far as you know what to do with it, and if you and also like the situation you're in is not going to necessarily give you what you need to be able to do the things you want to do, mm. um, like you know being a woman in the '60s <clears throat> or '50s or yeah. So it sounds like a lot of a generational book, mm. even though it was published in the 70s, uh, it feels like Yates was describing his experience from his own 20s, 30s. Um, I read somewhere, apparently he, his main characters are always the same age as him. <laughs> oh, yeah. So they, like, so literally, like, he's the same birthday as Emily, and he has the same birthday oh. as the guy in Revolutionary Road. Oh, mm-hmm. So he's writing the moments of, that he's seen. Yeah. And then he knew exactly how breast size would affect people's decisions <laughs> at those years. So Let's talk yeah. about breast size because I have never read a book where the breast size was more important for character and personality than mm. this book. I mean, we mm. have the sister, huge breasts, perfect teeth, mm. uh, marries quickly, uh, <laughs> or like early, yeah, yeah. and gets abused by her yeah. husband, beaten yeah. to yeah. death, mm. probably. And then we have the sister that we follow, uh, who's called Emily, and she has um, bad teeth and no breasts. So, of course, she has to be the intellectual mm. of the two. And it keeps returning to, like, lucky she didn't have, like, large boobs <laughs> or because she had small boobs, this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, for lots of times, like, it's because then this is like a compensation or a sublimation, yeah. Yeah, as yeah. you said earlier today. Yeah, yeah. she sublimates um, her no boobs and until teeth. the twist at the end, mm-hmm. when she's older, and it's like, well, because there wasn't much to begin with, there's nowhere to fall, so she's no. still attractive to the men around her. Yeah. yeah. And that was the, that was the, the one, like, the, the older sister looks dumpy and matronly. And, <laughs> mm, yeah. Yeah, it, it was definitely, you got the sense through the book that Yates is describing someone he thought was pretty attractive. And that was... But it's also definitely. an issue to mm. some extent for all the men that she's dating because they always have a very verbal response to her body. Mm. Either they're really into women with no <laughs> boobs or they totally hate it. Like uh, my favorite guy, what's his name? Uh, what's his name? It's the philosopher. The ph- yeah, the philosophy grad student. Who is um, uh, her first Andrew. like sort of real love, right? The, yeah. the one who cannot get a stiffy. Yeah. Yeah. Or an He's erection. Unable to <laughs> perform. And then he takes a year off their relationship to go into Lacanian analysis uh, to talk about his childhood and figure out how mm-hmm. he's going to be able to get an erection. And he never really succeeds. He, he makes progress. He makes progress. Though but I mean... It, it seems by going to some pretty dark places. Yeah. But can you... Do you have the... I do. Okay, read to us when he dumps her. So shortly after a... Um, a tense family uh, party uh, on the drive home. Andrew takes this moment of tension to say, "Do 
you want to know something, Emily? I hate your body. Oh, I suppose I love it too. At least God knows I try. But at the same time, I hate it. I hate what it's put me through last year. What it's putting me through now. I hate your sensitive little tits. I hate your ass and hips. The way they move and turn. I hate your thighs. The way they open up. I hate your waist and your belly and your great hairy mound and your clitoris and your whole slippery cunt. I'll repeat this exact statement to Dr. Goldman tomorrow and he'll ask me why I said it and I'll say, because I had to say it. So you see, Emily, do you understand? (laughs) I'm saying this because I have to say it. I hate your body. His cheeks were quivering. I hate your body. So that's... um, therapy it's dangerous guys uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah the, the men definitely fare worse than the women yeah and in some ways despite his fixation on her breast size and it's relevant to her motivation as a character which i think is probably in some way justified everyone has physical complexes about how they move through the world how they look to other people but yeah he's definitely fixated on that one um he does like give a somewhat, I don't know, a kind of disinterested appraisal of the men as if he's like not trying to justify like, well, he was just a struggling poet. Oh, he was just a, 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 a he's too lost in his own abstract thoughts as a philosopher. He's never like, he, ne- he makes no excuses for them. No. no and I no. think that's, that's quite a, it's a mark of a writer who's trying something a little bit, mm-hmm. I'd say. Yeah. I think it also is just maybe also be a reflection of sort of social norm of Mm. the time because the women very rarely have any sort of at least angry Mm. outbursts they Mm. have emotional outbursts to be sure but it's still the men who are allowed to have that anger Mm. and i feel like that's very you know typically masculine Mm. feminine Mm. ideals that the the feminine woman sort of stays in the back and tries Mm. not to have those outbursts Mm. yeah and uh, I think that ac- may actually be why some of the men seem to be f- worse than the women. Mm-hmm. Um, because, um, like, the women sometimes seem a bit more sympathetic yeah. than the men because the men have these awful outbursts. Yeah. But it was it's also just much more mm-hmm. allowed yeah. for men to have these have this anger and yeah. this sort of yeah. uh, masculinity complex. Mm. And especially when not having to perform, it's, you know, just a projection mm. of like this, your body is what I feel now is making me not perform because <laughs> clearly there can't be anything wrong with me. I'm in therapy. <laughs> <laughs> but then she does have an angry outburst towards the end at least. Yes. And then the book ends yeah. immediately after that. But she also has one a little earlier and she was totally justified in it as well because mm. he was going to California to have sex with his ex-wife. That was... Mm. So that's also fun. It's like her outbursts are justified and then yeah, and, exactly. and then eccentric at the end, I guess. Yeah. yeah. The one towards the end is just terrible. Well, it's it's like, awkward. You ooh, can't, it's it's hard. so bad. Yeah. Like, it's so bad. that yeah. I, It was nice reading it because it was so yeah. too much and gross. Yeah, yeah. And Stop saying this to the guy. Yeah. It's his mum you're talking and about. And it's the yeah. only it's like, nice person yeah. in the book. Yeah. Like, he is the only, like, good person yeah. in the book. It's a, uh, her nephew yeah. uh, called Peter, maybe. Mm-hmm. Peter. Mm-hmm. Uh, who offers to take her in after everyone has died and he's a reverend now and he she calls him and he can kind of feel that she's lonely and there's something there and then he invites her to the house and it's the only kind gesture that anyone has done towards her like in a really long time and then she just fucks that up too in the worst (laughs) possible way 
but he's nice about it. Don't forget the shop clerk who uh, compliments her uh, being an unproblematic uh, customer. Oh yeah, that's true. Uh, it's, a, it's a bleak last chapter, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that that I mean that was weird because I was reading that and it was it was almost like I don't know it felt like I should stop reading it like I I was I was yeah. looking in on something that was and I felt personally involved at yeah. that point like yeah. no 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 we are not helping things yeah, stop yeah, yeah yeah but also like you can see oh you can so see this coming oh my mm. god you should yeah yeah what were we all talking about. The, pe- the people and all their badnesses. Um, yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting, though, because it's also, I mean, the the position she has in the relationships, it's always so they're always the ones out in the world doing something. And, mm. and then her role is the emotional support network of the relationship. Mm. And so it's almost like she's structurally, una- uh, well, as you're saying, like at the time and the norms, like, she's structurally unable to have an outburst because the outburst would just be about the relationship. And if that's about the relationship, then we're fucked where the poet can complain about how he can't write modernist poetry. Mm. <laughs> and it's like, well, I don't know. And instead of doing what she wants to do, she yeah. finds these people who do what yeah. who does what she wants to do. Mm. And then she just stays in the background yeah. for the entire time, right? Yeah, because she has all the unfinished essays mm-hmm. that one day she'll write, but they always dwindle on the, mm. on the typewriter and discolor in the, oh, it's a, bleak image <laughs> i like this book so much mm. and i don't know why like mm. i become suspicious like i think you said that earlier <laughs> yeah. too Macon, that yeah. you were suspicious um of mm. how much you liked them i think i'm so suspicious of how uh much i like it because i'm afraid that i have read through something and not noticed like mm. maybe why it's not that good or why i mm. should like it less mm. um that I've sort of been seduced by it yeah. and haven't really been paying attention because like there's probably something that makes it a bad book and then there's <laughs> more to talk about, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But sure. I just like this book so much. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I did feel like uh, as I was plowing my way through it, like I like this a lot. This is this is the this is the writer that Jonathan Franzen thinks he is, and <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and and you know, you when you read Jonathan Franzen, you realize, oh. I enjoy this because he's making me feel smart by talking down to me the whole time. Um, and this one, I feel like it, I don't think I can make the same charge that it's talking down to me. I feel like it's, um, the the thing that you could say is a problem with it is it has a certain, a certain romanticization of tragedy, um, a certain, a certain way of placing suffering as if it's like, um, not inevitable, but this desirable, the desirable for transitioning, I guess. Yeah, maybe. But that's not even... A, mm, no. That's just like, yeah. Mm. I'm stretching to find why I don't like, why, why this should be a bad thing. Anyone else got an idea why it's bad? Uh, it, sometimes it feels like he just uh, heaps all this tragedy on, on, on the heroes. And I don't even feel like those women have that much agency to start with. Um, maybe they imagine themselves as, as having agency, but certainly not towards the end too. Mm. Um, and I, in in this uh, aspect, it, it seems similar to a 1965 novel uh, by John Williams, uh, Stoner. Oh, mm. love that book! Didn't it seem similar to you? It's also this sweeping uh, biographical kind of novel that uh, uh, traces the uh, lifelong failure of of the silent hero. 
sort of. Yeah, okay, I guess uh, who fucks up things by not grabbing the opportunities and staying in the background and self-sabotages in the same way. And yeah, but he is, yeah, as you say, like made into the hero, right? The quiet hero. Uh, but I don't, I never really thought that he was. Um, well, I think I did the first time, but I reread it and discussed it with a friend. Um, and I think the book kind of makes him an idiot in the book stoner, right? Because um, this is basically mm. my friend's point that I have now adopted for this. What's your friend's name? Uh, Where can you find them on Instagram? Or? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not on Instagram. Um but in Stoner, there is this uh, sort of turning point. Stoner is a professor. Um, he never gets promoted. Every, it always, mm. like, goes past him. Mm. Um, so he just keeps on being, I think, an associate professor for his whole life um, while all his friends get uh, promoted and blah, blah, blah. But at one point, uh, he actually has principles and stands up for them. And that is when a student uh, of one of his coworkers is defending his PhD thesis. Um, and Stoner knows, not that he's faking it, but that the student only knows something uh, about the topic which he wrote his mm. PhD thesis on. Mm. If you ask him about the whole of English literature and English history, then there will be massive gaps mm. in uh, mm. his knowledge. And Stoner wants to fail him because he doesn't know like mm. what he thinks is required, right? Mm. And I think maybe there Stoner outs himself, outs himself as a little bit of an idiot and like of the old ways because that is not how knowledge is mm. long, no longer. Mm -hmm. uh, knowledge is a new form now and maybe even then. Yeah, there are knowledges, not, not one knowledge. <clears throat> exactly. Um, like so people know something about a certain topic and then mm. they know a lot about that and not something about everything which like you know Aristotle knew mm. like something about everything mm. but he was also wrong about a lot of stuff right about sperm um, <laughs> right about sperm <laughs> but, but um so I don't know if the book stoner out stoner there is like a total idiot and that is why he's never gonna make it uh, or I don't think that's um, uh, the, the question that we started with but oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> there, there are those opportunities that uh, the heroes in one way or another fail to uh, make the best of. But I think it's because you called him a hero. And then I uh, questioned as, as if he actually was a hero a or just hero the main as character. hero in a protagonist. Mm -hmm. uh, in Polish, we have the same word for both. So mm -hmm. uh, accounted for the Interesting. Systems. What wonderful Derridian problematics we can untangle from this. <laughs> in it. Yeah, so I mean, um, yeah, agency was the thing. But I don't know, agency. I mean, you're always yeah, tangled agency. in with yeah. other people's agency. And yeah, like, free will's an illusion we used yeah. to sleep at yeah. night. <laughs> in terms of free will, a point of, I don't know if it's criticism or just something I disagree mm. with, mm. Uh, just ideally uh, or ideologically, is, mm. the, is the way that he presents sort of the damned if you do, damned if you don't mm. uh, with the two sisters mm. and the way they both so desperately try not to be their parents mm. and then inevitably just become their parents i feel like that's the the novel in and of itself is very bleak but i feel mm. like that's also a very bleak outlook that even if you do what your mother wants you to and get married young to a strapping young fella who has an estate yeah. and that'll go wrong eventually mm. and if you don't do what mm. your mother wants you to do and try to you know distance yeah. yourself from her for so many years you're still going to become an alcoholic lunatic like your mother did mm. and 
I feel like that's a very like it is it is a very bleak outlook and I feel like it's a very sort of I don't know uh it's something at least I would maybe critique the mm. way that you know uh Yates just seems to be like you know whatever the you, know, you may have free will but you're yeah. still gonna end up like your parents yeah it's kind of like it's like it's like a mix sort of sort of Guardian sort of novel in that way because it's the marry or marry not you'll regret both mm. um but at the same time I wonder like I mean, yeah, you do, there's like the patterns which get set and you repeat them and then the ones you try and escape. But I wonder if there's like this weird disjunction between the, there's this yeah, interplay between the opening of the book and then the, the bit towards the closing way. So the opening saying that neither of the Grimes sisters, neither of the Grimes sisters would have a happy life. And looking back, it always seemed like the trouble began with their parents' divorce. And then, and that kind of sets them in, in, in motion like, Okay, so you don't want to get divorced. So the, the options there are never marrying or marrying and staying through the entire thing. Mm. And, I, I, and then, but then the last part of it is when she says to her suffering uh, nephew. And that's towards the end, right? Yes, this is the very last page. Uh, yes, I'm tired, she said. And you know something funny? I'm almost 50 years old and I've never understood anything in my whole life. And I think there's something about like it questioning the premise by which a happy life can be judged. Mm. by like like she's been working on the wrong assumption and i feel like there's a moment of actually there's some sort of freedom in that mm. where she goes oh i've never understood anything my whole life while she's understood things she's had a miserable life yeah. mm. but if she now is able to go i don't understand maybe there's something opening up there mm-hmm. and i wonder if that's and then i wonder maybe maybe this is the problem with the book is it's so aesthetic like the the enjoyment you have reading mm. it the way you just plow on through it is opposed to the tragedy that it's trying to depict and so it doesn't actually give you an aesthetic experience of tragedy it gives you this kind of joyful exhilarating experience of slow tragedy and so you're like this is weirdly disjunctive like i'm not experiencing tragedy quite tragedy i'm experiencing tragedy quite excitement hmm. yeah that's, uh, precisely and, <laughs> and also the the first sentence of the book that um is quite famous hmm. i would say uh uh, it's also false, right? Mm. Because it, it says, the second part of it, it goes, uh, looking back, it always seemed that the trouble began with the parents' divorce. Mm. To whom has it always seemed that? Never uh, throughout the book, yeah. uh, I know the sisters uh, articulate this kind of sentiment uh, and for no other uh, protagonist for that part, uh, which is like a trap set uh, set up for, for the reader um, to dismantle uh, as we read uh, only maybe to come to this conclusion mm-hmm. the, the thing that you just yeah. said that, that we just had wrong premises from from, yeah. from the very beginning yeah which he then gave us so he's a bit of an asshole in that respect <laughs> 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 we wouldn't have thought that otherwise like he had a different line to start the book with she, be... she was an unre- unreliable uh, narrator from, from the very beginning <sighs> Ooh. In a realist novel. <laughs> Damn. Um, An unreliable narrator. That one always gets the literature professors going. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but um, I would say, I think um, this novel needs to be read as uh, very much a book of its time. Mm. Um, and uh, r- uh, wrestling with, with the idea of American dream, mm. right? And, and this boom of the 50s, mm. 60s mm. Mm, that expected so much of, mm. of the young people of, mm. of that time and, and 
somehow deemed yeah. it uh, impossible to achieve at yeah. the same time. And to the extent it was achievable, it was the cost of the climate. <laughs> <laughs> we, we laugh now, but this future listener on your dinghy in the middle of the <laughs> continuous ocean. But maybe that's also why I like this book mm. so much, because um, in it, sort of the premises that, mm. as you said, like everything is attainable. Mm. It's the only person who can sabotage it is yourself, mm. which is sort of like how this book goes, right? Mm. And it's, I mean, it's not really true, yeah. but yeah. that's... Lots of, and he also shows it, lots of other people sabotage, like Tony yeah, Wilson yeah. sabotages Sarah's life. and Yeah. 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 And it, I mean, it's the same thing now, right? Mm. You can do everything you want. Yeah. The only thing, the only one that stands in the way is yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. yeah this actually, this is the thing. We're we're living with the idea. We're still living with this ideology today, mm-hmm. and that's yeah. that's the amazing thing is we've not learned, despite all of these artistic representations. <laughs> this is like the cab race having no effect on Nazi Germany. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all of these you know scathing critiques of the norms of our world, and uh, yet still we we produce them as if. We understand everything when we've never understood anything. Yeah. God. Uh, at least we can understand the, the fact up situation that yeah. uh, people were 50 years ago. Mm. In yeah, maybe. Maybe one day we can understand that. As Hegel used to say, that the uh, owl of wisdom, no, of, of Minerva mm. sets out at the, uh, at the sunset, right? Am I right? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> yeah, but like, you? maybe he did say that. But like, what are those nouns? No, oh, it means that uh, it's easy to judge uh, the, the historical events after they have uh, transpired. But uh, it's pretty hard to. Uh, well, that's why it's like it's like it's really relevant to think of it in the context of today, because like this is what like what being an influencer is is like saying you can do it yourself. You just need to take the right actions, and then mm-hmm. you'll be. Uh, yeah, entrepreneur of the self and all that. <sighs> yeah, I, mean, I think I'm just defeated by it. I think it's too well put together. <laughs> I love it. But I mean, mm. you don't hate it in the, like, usually you sort of, you're very skeptical of what you call the MFA literature, right? Which is like yeah, but the handcraftmanship is... more oh, than the novel. This isn't that. This is no. like, this is, if, if, if this is craftsmanship, this is like someone learning it artisanally in a, in, in like a cave far away from the and like the, <laughs> and it's because it's like distinctive it's not um it's, it doesn't have that kind of cookie cutter like here's the rhythm of a joke here's yeah. the here's the setup of an absurd situation it's mm-hmm. just like stripped down like how much information do i need to give you for you to feel far more than that mm. yeah take any less take any more out and it's just bare bones like a like a sketch more in and you're telling me too much <clears throat> i feel nothing yeah it's um Oh God, I'm defeated by it, definitely. Yeah. Let's talk about representation. It's a male writer writing about uh, two female protagonists. Well, how do you feel about it? I mean, I only had the thing of like, boob size has never been more important than in this book. But other than that, fine. Yeah, I think he uses the, the body and in particular mm. the breast size mm. to sort of work as the vehicle for their insecurities and yeah the, and i did you not know com- the, com- the comparing of the two sisters the easiest way without you know giving too much away yeah. is just to describe them physically and i think <clears throat> a lot of male authors when describing women at least in this time mm. just go to you know the curves like yeah. are, does their do, do their hips look nice do their boobs look mm. nice does the ass look nice, you know? Yeah, and I didn't come out of this book with a very much of an impression of how the um, of how the men look in this book. No, like well, um, 
have a vague idea, oh. but I don't know like the size of their ass or got, their got, hips. Got a nice impression of the shriveled or... uh, penis of Henry as he comes out of the sea. Yeah. That was sort of really <clears throat> it. Yeah. 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 Like a long face on the poet. I got that. that came across. But uh, Yeats is lauded as as a uh, as compassionate towards uh, his woman protagonist as a uh, Flaubert. Mm. Uh, and I've done my research, and it turns out he was quite a chauvinist in his uh, life, mm. private life. Uh, apparently, after his divorce, he he blamed it for uh, he blamed it, he blamed the woman liberation front uh, for 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 his divorce. And I mean, he's probably not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not a bad thing. No. But there's also, I think, because now if I'm thinking about it, like when contemporary women, females, uh, write about women. They often also describe their bodies, but it feels so satirical because I yeah. think they do it like because we all know how the men have described the women, right? Mm. So now, like in uh, my year of rest and relaxation, for example, mm. when she's uh, constantly saying how well, how good she looks yeah. and how skinny she is mm. and all this, like it's a satire, right? It's it's yeah. almost always a yeah. satire when women describe women's look, at least mm. like uh, appearances like a, yeah. in books, because there's always like. So it's sort of looking towards the men that mm. already done it. Mm. It's uh, it's like negotiating with the male gaze mm-hmm. rather than this just like being a nice case study. Exactly. That, yeah. Yeah. Although there are far more egregious examples than this. Mm. But this is like Jonathan Franzen, for example. He's like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel like that's also where the sort of bare bones prose comes to his benefit mm. in mm. terms of how he writes women because he doesn't give himself all that much space to judge them yeah. with how minimally he tries to describe everything. Yeah. No, it could be way worse. It could be so much <laughs> worse. And I think that's definitely to his benefit because he just tries to just, this is just how it is. Sometimes you mm. get a little glimpse of, okay, you know, you're focusing an awful lot on breasts mm. there, guy. <laughs> but I also do think it's very realistic for two sisters who are that close age-wise mm. to constantly compare each mm. other. Mm even physically, yeah, if yeah. not especially physically, mm-hmm. especially during those teenage years and, yeah. you know, when, when the whole puberty thing hits. Yeah. So I, I, I think it definitely comes yeah, in handy mm. that he, he does as little as possible mm. because it could definitely have been a lot more egregious. Aww. And in many ways, like, that thing ties back to, like, why the book is called The Easter Parade because it's that moment of, like, uh, Sarah kind of maturing into, like, adult womanhood mm. and... And that being their kind of frozen positions in their own minds, like she's the the big sister who's attractive, and she's like the smaller one who has to like try and you know see what whatever space is left for her in the world, and that's like their dynamic through their entire. That's the dynamic they're always measuring reality against. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that one picture. Yeah, that's pretty good. We could yeah. probably wrap that up there. Yeah, well, do the wrap up, but yeah, yeah. I would also like to say hi to my mom, who's listening to us right now. Do it in the end. <laughs> say say your hellos. <laughs> Emma, would you recommend this book? I actually would. I sort of went into this as a Yates virgin. Um, I haven't read Revolutionary Road. It's really good. I've heard a lot about it. It's and I, I middle class horror story, yes, just like this one. Yes, but it's, it has the element of suburban horror story. Oh, fantastic. Um, but yeah, I, I would definitely recommend this book. Uh, I read this in almost one sitting. I uh, Tell us, tell, tell the audience how in, you read it. I was uh, holding all the baggage as uh, my friends were running to get a camp at Roskilde Festival. And uh, I had a short of 20 hours to kill in a festival chair. <laughs> and uh, this book kept me company 
Um, so I read it almost in one sitting, and uh, yeah, it, it's it's it, you kind of breeze through it. Um, I normally get very bored by prose that is so just bare bones and minimalistic. Um, but I, I actually really enjoyed it because I feel like he infuses it with a lot of uh, interesting characters and a lot of interesting sort of thoughts mm. on the ideas of free will and agency and all that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's all bleakly. It's hard, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Would you recommend it, Tamil? Yeah, <clears throat> I say, uh, sure, uh, go for it. Um, I, maybe I would recommend it as a young adult novel. Really? <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, I get them to fucking like, you know, but stopping like pretentious intellectuals all the time. <laughs> yes, it's better uh, people realize stuff sooner than later. <laughs> <laughs> as evident in yeah. this novel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, make it clear by, yeah, come out at the age of 19 and make sure you know that you, you understand nothing. Uh, it should be a school yeah. <laughs> reading. Are you going to say hi to someone, Tamil? Nope. Okay, fine. Why? <laughs> uh, Are you sure? Uh, can I just say hi to the queen? Uh, I really appreciate the job that she's doing and uh, keep up the good job for many years to come. So we, we will tag the royal house in this. Yeah. <laughs> Macon, would you recommend it? Yeah, I'm going to read Revolutionary Road too. I saw the film a while ago and that was great because it's um, what would have happened if Titanic had turned out differently. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And they were stuck in uh, yeah. Yeah. Suburb- yeah. suburban town, right? But I just, just love this premise of like, you know, it's this, yeah, we're going to do something tomorrow. We're going to, we soon we'll be great tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And it's like tomorrow never comes. And it's just, oh, it's, yeah. I, was, I saw that like 10 years ago. And I think that's just broken me in lots of other ways. Um, and I think I should now read the book because I'm just amazed at the craft and how much. It's it's so, it like, I too often get bored when it's just very plain kind of. But like if you if you've managed to work out how to do plain writing and load it with so much subtext, then yeah. I'm so surprised that you like this book. Not because I think it's a bad book, but just because now I mean we've almost done this for four mm. years now. And I can still not totally pin down what you like and what I think I have what you don't like yeah. now. But I can't totally pin down what you like. Yeah. I'm getting closer on you, I think. Well, it's- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just books about necrophilia, really. Is really, the, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you expect? It is written by a white male author. Yeah. Mm. The best writers of all time. <laughs> <laughs> would you recommend the book, Gio? Yes, I would. I mean, I recommended it to you guys, and I am going to keep recommending it. Um, I read it first three years ago, and I loved it. And now this time I was like, really, like, I really liked it, but I think I read it with a sort of skepticism mm. of like, I should not like, th- like, yeah. what can I do to yeah. make me not yeah. like this yeah. book? Yeah. 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 <laughs> and I just didn't succeed. Yeah, and that's, <clears throat> that's, the, that's the curse, you know? So. Next month. I will not be here next month. Yeah. Because I'm writing thesis about Aristotle and uh, sperm with a theological dimension to it. I it was going to be biology. <laughs> Isn't it about Jesus and anorexia? Yes, it's about Jesus and anorexia, but it's and also... And I can avoid it without a rehearsal. But it's also about Aristotle. So uh, what are you guys going to read, Mike? Um, well, I'm in conversation with our, our replacement host, uh, Sherry Helberg, and we're talking about this uh, new uh, novel by the um, Vietnamese-American writer Ocean uh, Vuong. Um, On Earth, we're, we're briefly gorgeous. Ooh, nice and, title. Uh, we're... 
think about that. That's the likely candidate, but we haven't narrowed it down yet. Mm-hmm. Normally, we use the last-minute thing of before the recording to narrow it down, but Sherry's not here right now, so that's what if we're If I settled, on. yeah. <clears throat> you sure you got no shout-outs other than another queen? Mm. <clears throat> yeah, I, I would like to say hi to my neighbor, uh, Howdly Doodly, neighborino. Yeah. Great. Um, well, thanks, guys, for joining us, and uh, yeah. like, subscribe, and share. <laughs> <laughs> and rate us on iTunes, because Apple is our god. <laughs> I'm just saying cheers. Cheers. That's fair. Oh, thank you. Oh, hi. Nope, okay, right. <laughs>